0: Hello, everyone. It's April 14th, 2020. This week, we're talking about that precision air capture of an electron-first stage. Rocket Lab is well on its way to partial reusability. It's amazing what you can do with a parachute and a helicopter. Let's get into the details and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 256 of the Orbital Mechanics podcast. I'm David.
1: I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. We already bantered ourselves out before we started recording, so... Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we were just discussing. Um, it, it's actually been a pretty eventful week, cons- you know, like all things considered. So we have mm. some stuff to talk about, which I'm very happy for.
2: Yeah, no, I, I was mentioning. Uh, Bennu released a super high resolution map, the highest resolution of any kind of astronomical body, uh, global map at least. It's it's a uh, it's a hefty chunk to download, but you know, if you, I haven't seen it yet because I just noticed it before the show. But um I'm pretty excited to check it
0: out. So how big is a map like that? Like you say high resolution maps. so what would that be in terms of size as far as like they're saying gigs can, or megs or
2: oh so well oh yeah, angular sizes, so you can see things like it's not an angle at that point, but you can see things resolve features down to ten inches. Okay, wow. And I mean, right, it takes advantage of the that that like is a small asteroid.
0: Is that like ten inches per pixel?
2: No, I'm guessing that means that their pixel scale or um when we were talking about high rise they have a different term for it in planetary science but the yeah the physical dimension per pixel is probably something like a couple inches and then you need at least like four or five pixels to resolve something so okay yeah still like wild
0: yeah and how big is benu <laughs> uh
2: what am i gonna say uh city block that's my guess before i look it up.
0: city block okay yeah
1: mm. let's see yeah let's let's see how we do
2: Radius uh two hundred and fifty yeah, quarter of a kilometer. I'd say yeah, that's about a city block. Okay. Or not city block, just a block.
1: Yeah, that's that's really tight. I didn't realize it was that small. Mm. So that's like if you're if you're driving at like thirty miles an hour, that's gonna take you a minute or two to get across.
2: Right, right. You you, you could hike it. You could hike uh, could hike
1: it Yeah, yeah, I like that.
0: And at six micro G it wouldn't be hard to do, I suppose. You could just <laughs> one very, very light jump. <laughs>
2: One step and then uh, just wait.
0: (laughs) Then you go into orbit.
2: Yeah, okay. So I went on a two-mile
1: walk yesterday. That would be 4280 times two. So call it 8,400 feet. Yeah, so I I walked like uh, six Bennu's-ish. (laughs) Yep. Now now this is how I'm going to think about everything. That's awesome. (laughs)
0: So the big story this week is Rocket Lab. Uh, they did a successful mid-air capture of their first stage by means of a drop test, right? That is what that's mm-hmm. still called. So you mm-hmm. drop a stage from one helicopter, pick it up with another. And uh, this was really neat to watch. And I, I had to tip my hat to the production staff at Rocket Lab. Like they mm-hmm. do, they genuinely give SpaceX a run for their money because they do the whole nine yards, you know, the cameras, the whole score, the editing, just everything <laughs> like they take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. So you can watch a really cool YouTube video video of all that and the one thing that confused me but we will get to that is how exactly the capture happened because i was like watching and i was kind of like squinting and i I was like how did they do that you know because you can just see it just get picked up and it's such a neat trick because um when was the last time that something that big was captured from mid-air that had to have been back in the 60s or something when they were doing those tests with uh what was it um photo
2: Coronas.
0: Well, that was just a little canister, but for something this big,
2: oh, right. so, maybe sorry.
0: never. I don't know. When was the last time something big was captured out of midair? I don't even know. So it was quite a sight to see.
2: So
1: I, I wonder why SpaceX decided to use a net on a boat instead of... A helicopter, because kind of seems like a more natural way of doing things.
0: Rocket Lab made it look easy, although the pilot says otherwise. but...
2: Um. maybe because they don't have as much control over the fairings as you do with the first stage. No, they
0: they
1: actually have more control over the fairings. It's a steerable parafoil, and remember, they're they're actually directing the uh, fairing to the boat. Like it, it steers itself towards the towards the boat.
2: So I didn't realize that. I thought the boat was doing all the work.
1: I mean, I think the boat is doing the bulk of the work, but they've, I mean, we, we've specifically heard that it is a, a steerable, uh, hmm. parafoil. So May, maybe it's the fact that a fairing has such a large ballistic coefficient, like it's very draggy and maybe it's harder to fly, uh, a helicopter carrying one, hmm. or, or maybe they have tighter since it, since it flies higher in the atmosphere, they have tighter restrictions on weight. And so they can't make the, the harness uh, strong enough to have a single point load, it has to be distributed across. The, I
0: don't know. Yeah. Because I was thinking, you know, actually how much more weight would it be? And it, would, and it probably would be a lot. But if they could power the fairing so that it could operate as, I don't know what you call those, but, you know, those little fan type of pair of things, you know, that you see people. <laughs> oh. and
1: yeah, put a, put a deploy.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that it could just fly itself back. <laughs> I
1: love that idea. I mean, it could be electric, like, you know.
0: Yeah, put a little electric motor on there and just have it steer itself back. That would be a payload penalty, but you know maybe it would be worth it. I don't know. I mean, at, yeah. at this point, you know they're not going to do that, but right. it's an idea. That's
1: well, well, what that. was what's ESA's booster oh. with a with a propeller on the back of it?
2: Adele
0: or I think it's Adelaide, right? Or is it Adelaide. Adelaide. There you go. No, I think it's Adeline or something like that.
2: And so uh, a lot of this, uh, what we're talking about, came from an awesome video and, you know, uh, information that uh, Rocket Lab released on their website. But also Tim Dodd did a wonderful uh, interview with Peter Beck very recently. And so you should uh, go check that out because uh, they talk about not just the uh, the mid-air capture, but also uh, some other really cool stuff. I actually
0: haven't watched the whole interview. It was a pretty good, it was like, what about like a half hour, but I did watch all the highlights, you know, like all the stuff that pertains to this. So 7,000 to 900 kilometers per hour. Now, is that when the chute deploys or are they looking to slow it down further? Like how do you, because this is not a supersonic, I guess it's subsonic, right? But that's pretty fast. So what happens then? I wasn't clear on that.
2: Yeah. If, if I read correctly, then that 900 kilometers per hour is when they Hit the ocean in these Mm. previous launches. So, yeah, the idea would be you would have to use your chutes earlier, you know, when you're still going faster than that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, 900 might be the terminal velocity. So they, they light, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they hit that. Before you know, they slowed down to 900 before they hit the ocean. That's a good point. Right? Does yeah. it does it get down to terminal velocity?
2: I, I don't know. The the language was that the 900 kilometers by the time it reached sea level. Okay, and so the, that's why I kind of I'm not sure. Well, and especially especially if it's not tumbling, right? If they're
1: if they're keeping mm-hmm. it in line with its you know controlling the AOA. Then yeah, they they may never get down to terminal velocity.
0: So I'm just curious, what would they do then? Like, how are they planning on deploying the chute at that speed or faster?
2: I mean, do we have drogues that can handle? Yeah, I'm sure know, a, a for stage yeah. like that, slow it down to where yeah. I mean, it, it's
1: still supersonic, but yeah, we can we we have supersonic decelerators.
0: Is it though? 900 kilometers per hour.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking miles an hour is is. uh it's
2: 700.
0: Mach 1 in kilometers per hour is actually 1,234 kilometers. Yeah, so it's, I mean, not much below, but yeah, it's, it's subsonic. Mm. Yeah, that's 560 miles per hour. So it's still going pretty fast. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you don't have to, you, you you know, you refit and you slow down. I mean, it, you know, parachutes are kind of, they kind of go drogue shoot in the beginning and then slowly deploy. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially considering, like, SpaceX's fairings falling from the actual upper atmosphere. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe hmm. maybe my instincts are wrong, but I, I don't think it's that big of a deal.
2: Yeah, like you, I think I'm not coming at this with any real world experience or knowledge, but I, get, you know, I just have to assume that between the drogue and maybe, you know, like you say, reefing and, you know, slowly deploying the main parachute there, they're, they're not going to just pop the whole main parachute at 900 kilometers an hour. And so whatever that lower speed is, I have to imagine their people have kind of, calculated it and figured that you know it is feasible it is possible i mean just bringing it down to that slow just by being a you know a rocket stage that isn't retro propulsing or anything right it's just you know that's that's impressive enough i remember when they first said they were going to do that you know we were just kind of like how (laughs) <laughs> right, Because they're we like, are, are there going to be um, grid fins or something like that? And uh, yeah,
0: So the helicopters that had done both the drop and the recovery, they looked to me to be like regular helicopters. They weren't those sky crane ones, you know, which is hmm. kind of what I thought that they would have to use. But these look like just normal helicopters. And I suppose that that's just because the first stage is not that big. I mean, it's big, but it's not like, you know, it's not as though... The Rocket Lab launch vehicle is huge. I mean, it's a pretty small rocket, all things considered. So I guess they could just use a more conventional helicopter. But I don't know anything about helicopters, so I have no idea.
2: Well, you, you what... weren't alone. Uh, zarified in our Discord, I, I won't speak for you, David. I know he knows more about helicopters than me. <laughs> and he wrote that uh, the recovery vid is amazing. And like you said, they used a, uh, a regular helicopter. Zarified wrote that they used a Bell 429 to capture. I thought they might need something even bigger, like an S-29. which or an S-92. Uh, Sorry, S92, which is, you know, one of these bigger ones. Not the super heavy-duty ones that look like they're missing their midsection, mm-hmm. but still, like, a noticeably larger, kind of black ish size mm-hmm. shape to me.
0: Yeah, it does look pretty small. It says it's actually a light twin-engine helicopter, and that's what they use to carry this stage. So, that's impressive. Yeah,
2: well, like I said, they're not that big. The first stage isn't that big, and, um, you know, it's got no fuel left in it since they're not saving any for the yeah. end. So that makes it I guess a little lighter and evidently right the proof is in the pudding they did it snatched up the it was a dummy rocket so you know it didn't have the you know engines Mm -hmm. or engine but um yeah no they snapped it and placed it delicately in a field (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I really like. Yeah, that. they
0: just lightly let it plop down on a field. I think it stayed upright, right? Like it didn't tip over, or did it? They they guided it to its side. Okay, so they gently lowered it, yeah. which I suppose makes sense because they have to go pick it up, and you don't want to have to tip that thing over. But what's really cool, uh, one one of the things that came out
2: of this Tim Dodd interview was, um, how are you going to do this when you actually have, you know, your your engine bell at the bottom, right? And there's a uh, uh, what Peter Beck describes as a half shell jig that'll basically grab it. In this case, uh, the. It sounds like they—they they, rather than bringing it to land, they'll have a marine platform there, and so you'll be able to just kind of secure it. There's a pretty wide tolerance, so it's not as though—I mean, the helicopter pilot still has to thread the needle, but it's you know, it's something feasible. Okay, can we go back?
1: Can we go back to parachutes? Totally, totally.
2: Okay, so
1: I found an article written by Christian von Bengston, one of the founders of Copenhagen Suborbitals, mm-hmm. and the reentry drogue and parachute that they designed, they have a safe assumption that the drogue can deploy at 500 kilometers an hour and the main parachute can deploy at 150 kilometers per hour. I think that if they are deploying a drogue at 500 kilometers an hour and like that's their maximum operational limit and their Copenhagen suborbitals who are very very good, but not professionals. I bet you that there's a professional uh, drogue out there that can easily. I mean, like remember, like we already land capsules under this, you know, with a mm-hmm. uh, with a drogue and a main. So again, <laughs> I may regret this later, but I'm going to double down. I don't think that 900 kilometers an hour is that big of a deal, especially if you're going to use a drogue, I, I, maybe a main reefed could deploy because remember it doesn't have to l- it doesn't have to get down to landing speeds it only has to get down to how fast a helicopter can safely descend speeds mm. <laughs> i think it's okay <laughs> Put sorry that, that was the the best information i could get was was looking at copenhagen
2: no that's good i I could believe that right i mean and and, and what year was that i mean
1: it it was written up in wired let's see in 2011 so yeah fairly
2: fairly recent okay.
1: um, but that's yeah. also at the the early stages of them actually looking at landing a capsule
2: so if you could squeeze out a little less than a factor of two out of your trope and you can get that 900, assuming that 900 kilometers per hour is how fast it's going at higher altitudes, as opposed to sea level. Right,
1: as opposed to right before disaster. Okay, sorry. All right. (laughs) Closed all my tabs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We can continue, and I will actually be here. So, the recovery, he describes what's actually going to capture this thing as a half-shell jig. So, I I don't know what that means, half-shell, but I just imagine like, you know, a giant clamp or claw of some sort that sort of like, you know, grabs it. Is that what that is?
1: Half shell suggests that it's just, you know, basically that like a, like a net, right? Like a half I shell? I don't know. I mean, I he was... called it a
0: jig, which means generally that's something that by definition holds a piece of yeah. hardware in place. I think it
1: fits a bit closer than a giant net. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That was going to be my uh, engineering question: is can I just substitute jig for clamp? Yeah. I think it's a
1: yeah a fitted a fitted half shell thing that you can put straps over. Maybe.
0: I'm thinking of it as some kind of you know a clamp, like kind of like what Dennis was suggesting. You can use the helicopter and you can guide it in because this is something that I believe that Peter Beck said during the interview was that they can actually guide that with a pretty high amount of precision. So they can get it like into place and then from there you can have. I'm assuming a clamp, you know, kind of just like very gently and slowly tighten around it and then hold it so that the engine bells don't get crushed. Because the whole point is to make sure that the engine bells don't touch any surface because then they're going to crinkle up and (laughs) you have damaged engines. So you have to just keep it from touching the ground and i imagine a clamp would do that pretty well but i don't know i mean who knows how much force you can even apply to that first stage during the launch when it's on the platform it's like held up from the thrust plate i imagine that that's how you you know support it on the launch pad
1: yeah when it's standing vertically
0: yeah. Right. But mm-hmm. but you can't bring that back down onto that little section because that, that would require too much precision flying. So maybe they would just have to clamp onto it with a giant hand, a big robot hand. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, no, mean, I mean, I w- mean, helicopters place things very precisely. I mean, we use mm-hmm. helicopters as like construction cranes. Mm-hmm. So the I think the expertise and knowledge is out there. And, you know, it's not like you're putting it down in the middle of nowhere. Like you're probably putting it down with a ground crew available to help guide it i don't i don't
2: know
1: i i I wouldn't be surprised if they did put it down vertically on the on the launch clamp
2: so going back to the video i don't know i I feel like we just need to emphasize just how awesome this video is like the production (laughs) value is great but like yeah the the pilot i mean right before he you know snags the drogue line with the grappling hook he said you know he's looking his head out the window at it. You know what I mean? Like he's not looking through the phone. He was like
0: he was like leaning out of the helicopter. I assume yeah. he had a seatbelt on.
2: Yeah, right. That, that was just so badass. Yeah. And I love this this exchange that um when they got to the ground, Peter Beck finally goes and says to the pilot, you know, Oh, that did that doesn't look too bad at all, you know, what you did up there. And the pilot's like, Oh no, I was working for that so, very skilled, but he did it on the first try and everything. Like, he just, you know, mm-hmm. zoomed right in there. That couldn't have gone, I imagine, any more flawlessly from their perspective.
0: Yeah, I wonder how many more tries you get. Mm. I guess you don't have to make a pass. You just have to keep yourself in line with that little catch and, mechanism. And,
2: and apparently, yeah, it, it had only dropped 1,000 feet. So, like, right, so it, they dropped it at six. So, there's the three helicopters. The one taking the footage, <laughs> the one that has that's gonna do the retrieval, and then the one that's carrying the dummy stage, and they dropped the dummy stage at six thousand feet, and the um, other helicopter was like just on its was flying, I guess, in formation. It was at the same uh, altitude and everything, and so it managed to actually snag the dummy stage at five thousand feet. So you know, however long that took, you probably have another couple thousand feet it can drop before it's like too close to the water that you kind of just like, all right, we're just gonna abort. In this case, but
1: oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the grappling hook, yeah, it does grab the line and not the pilot chute itself. That's really interesting.
2: Apparently, in air quotes, all you need to do, end air quotes, <laughs> is uh basically get the line coming from the recovery helicopter to essentially touch yeah, the... Tangle um, yeah, tangle it. Yeah, tangle Yeah, And then you just kind of bring it up. And then when you do that, it'll... Mm-hmm. Grab the dro- drogue line kind of automatically and secure it.
1: And what's uh, what's really cool is the sort of the reefing mechanism when when the parachute is being held by the pilot, the parafoil crumples up into a really nice shape. And mm-hmm. then um, watching them land because they you know they just landed this back on land, which they're it's a little different. But I mean, you can see the kind of accuracy that they have when placing this thing back down on the ground. So I I mm-hmm. bet you they're just going to put it in a. Basically a launch stand style receptacle. Mm. That'd be my guess. It'd be inter- it'll be interesting to see what they end up doing. Uh, so before we move on to the last little bit of this, we have to talk about Corona because that's the other famous um, space hardware being collected by an aircraft, I guess, because they used uh, airplanes, mm. not helicopters. But yeah, honorable mention super fascinating, totally different challenges though, because the Corona film canister was minuscule compared to a rocket first stage. And, uh, but, but also the rocket first stage is not, or the electron first stage is not coming back from orbit, whereas Corona was. So some things easier, some things a little harder, but overall the easiers are definitely on the side of Corona.
2: So, I mean, awesome video, really please check it out. It's Really cool. And the interview with Tim Dodd is wonderful as well. And uh, so as for what's what's coming up next, uh, the next test will be in late 2020 on uh, their Flight 17. There won't be a helicopter this time, but the idea is this will be uh, using a parachute on the stage for a soft ocean landing. And then they're just going to go and collect it, bring it back to their production complex. And kind of, you know, the attitude is... Let's see what condition it is when we, you know, Mm land it with the parachute in the ocean. And, you know, if it's in better shape than we anticipated, that's a bonus. Otherwise, you know, we'll see what we get.
0: Let's do four short and sweet, so a lot of (laughs) not-so-short. What's the first one, Dennis? Well,
2: first up, the Mars helicopter has been attached to its NASA rover. In preparation for its trip to Mars this summer, several key milestones for the Perseverance rover have been completed, namely fueling the Skycrane descent stage with hydrazine and attaching the Mars helicopter and its delivery system. The day long process of attaching the helicopter began by confirming data and commands could be sent or received between the different systems, followed by confirmation that the helicopter could receive an electrical charge from the rope. Now the helicopter will remain encapsulated on the rover's belly until its deployment in May of next year, two and a half months after Perseverance's landing.
0: And next up, Starliner gets a second flight test. Following the unsuccessful orbital flight test of Starliner in December, Boeing has opted to do a second flight test at its own expense to verify it has corrected the software problems that resulted in a failed mission to the ISS. NASA had not yet determined if a second test flight was needed. However, Boeing went ahead with the decision. NASA still has to verify that the 61 corrective actions outlined in it independent review have been addressed. This test has not yet been scheduled, but is targeted for sometime in late 2020.
1: Third up, uh, a long march fails to loft Nusantara Dua. So the launch of Nusantara Dua, aka Palapa M1, did not make it to orbit this week. Details are sparse from the People's Republic of China, but a fiery cloud of debris could be seen over the skies of Guam on Thursday. It appears the Long March 3B's third stage burn failed to begin, or else terminated early. This makes for the second failure in the last three Long March launches, and we wish them luck on the upcoming inaugural launch of their heavy-lifting Long March 5B.
2: And fourthly... Mastin Space Systems wins Lunar Lander Award from NASA. NASA announced Mastin has been selected to deliver a suite of payloads to the South Polar Region of the Moon in late 2020. The $76 million contract involves the company's XL1 lander bringing nine science and technology demonstration payloads to the surface as part of the Eclipse Program, or Commercial Lunar Payload Services. This is the first award since the initial three given in to Astrobotic, Intuitive Machines, and Orbit Beyond, although the latter has since surrendered theirs. Masten's six propellant tank lander builds on their experience with terrestrial vertical takeoff and landing craft and their prize winning Zombie and Zoe lunar landing prototypes.
1: Something in the chat said uh, that we stay on Masten. <laughs> I like it. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns. We got several of I think I think all of these. So
1: Yeah, we got a mixed back.
0: First thing is referring to something we said last week about that Starhopper test. Yeah.
1: Well, we yeah. is is being very uh, polite. And it wasn't Starhopper that we were talking about. We were talking about uh, SN3, I think.
0: Ugh yeah. Yeah, so many names. Nice. And
1: trust us, we're getting we're gonna get into the nomenclature in the next uh in the next couple of corrections. All right. So Chris Hoffman uh, sent me a direct message and pointed out, I I mentioned um, we were talking about seeing fire during the explosion. I was like, I think it's probably just a locks vent, uh, you know, where they're burning off locks up at the top. We decided, you know, we uh, hopefully correctly, (laughs) but we uh, changed and said, Oh, that probably wasn't a vent. That was probably batteries exploding. Okay, great. But it still wouldn't have been a locks vent. Uh, for two reasons. First off, it's not LOX vents that have uh, fire at the top, the flare. It's actually methane vents. So that's the first reason. The second reason is there wasn't methane. It wouldn't have been methane burning off anyway, because there was no methane involved in this test, which I believe we mentioned uh, in last week's show. Okay, second yeah. correction. This comes from Ben Hallard on Twitter and then also uh, from Chris in a direct message. I offhand said, oh, yeah, Grasshopper. Uh, was the vehicle that we got explosion footage from, uh, that somebody recorded, uh, from off base, I guess, <laughs> outside of SpaceX property. Mm. Uh, it wasn't Grasshopper that exploded. Grasshopper is still extant. Uh, it's on display. Uh, it was F9er Dev that exploded. So there you go. Mm. Um, Another name issue, uh, I differentiated between Star Popper and uh, Starship SN1. No, Star Popper is the nickname that we gave to SN1, the community gave to SN1. So those are the same thing. Okay, little corrections over. Now let's get into uh, a cool little discussion topic. Uh, Eric Blood wrote in via email, uh, last week we talked about the worm logo Uh, on the side of a Falcon 9. And um, Eric had a good uh, little uh, advisory. The way that we talked about it it sounded as if it might have been the original logo. That's not the case. The original logo is actually the meatball logo, the blue logo with the swoosh. So Eric had an interesting uh, mistake that he made during Hidden Figures. And I'm going to say mistake because I made the exact same mistake. Um, Where in Hidden Figures, you see the meatball all over, you know, the Hidden Figures, the movie, you see the meatball logo everywhere. Um, his assumption uh, watching it was, oh, that's not right. The meatball came came after the worm logo. And my assumption was, oh, the meatball came after the golden seal logo or the, the yeah, the seal, not the crest, uh, the seal. And so it's funny that he Eric and I both saw the meatball and decided, Oh, that must be a mistake because that wasn't the original logo. But then we went in separate directions. So here's the actual timeline. And, uh, Eric gave me a really nice PDF that I ended up actually Googling and finding that PDF when I was first reading this email. And I found the exact same PDF and then he linked it at the end of his email. So it's nice that we uh, both arrived at the same resource. Uh, But there's a PDF that uh, will be linked in the show notes that talks about the history uh, of NASA's graphic Uh, representation, I guess. Uh, So it's titled Emblems of Exploration Logos of the NACA and NASA. And so when NASA went looking for a good logo, uh, they actually uh, settled on the gold seal uh, first. But they uh, had some internal discussions where they said, well, we need a simplified version of this for more casual communications and for letterhead and that kind of thing. And so they designed the gold seal first and then designed the blue meatball second, but um, they announced the gold seal or, or endorsed it as a device later, a, a good four months later. Then they endorsed the meatball as uh, as an accepted device, um, yeah. and then of course the the worm
0: logo was
1: was from the eighties, I believe.
0: Mm, Nineteen seventy five, I think, is when it first came, Actually,
1: that's that's yeah. really early. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it looks so eighties, but you know, the eighties were born out of the seventies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's how that works.
1: Yeah. So there you go. Um, I'm glad that we get a chance to make sure that we're not misleading people, um, into thinking that the, that the meatball or, or that the, that the worm logo was the original NASA logo. The reason that we are talking about it as the old logo, um, was because we kind of went meatball, worm, meatball. Um, and so that we're referring back to when the worm was in use and calling it the old logo, even though the meatball predates it. So I hope that was nice and confusing for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. go, go ahead and look up this uh, this PDF linked in the show notes. It's long, but you know. Well, a lot of people have time for reading right now and, uh, it's a really good look into all these different logos and so many more logos and devices and, uh, icons and things like that. So it's, it's worth a read if you got a sec. So if you're listening to this on the day that it's published, uh, April 14th, tonight, we're going to be doing a viewing party. We're going to watch, um, Apollo 13 home safe. Um, I've got a watch together link in the show notes, um, if you're listening to this later, hopefully you saw all of the tweets that I'm planning on putting out, but come join us. It, it should be pretty good. So again, that's April 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern time.
0: So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have uh, three winners this week, uh, Ben Hallard, Coaster Gallery and The Greek, and the clue was Five Alive. Yeah, I didn't know what that was about, but... <laughs> Uh, it makes sense now, now that we have the correct answer. Yeah. I, it's funny how
1: that, how that works out. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like I wrote this to make sense once you knew it. Okay. <laughs> so this week in spaceflight history is the 16th of April, 1965. It was the first five-engine test stand firing of the S-1C prototype. S-1CT at Marshall Space Flight Center. And I got to point out, uh, yeah, uh, Apollo 13 launched 50 years ago in 1970, uh, yesterday as we're recording this. So it was Saturday, uh, Saturday the 11th. Um, but we're going to go back earlier. We're going to talk about supporting NASA launches. And also, uh, I have to give a shout out to the S-4B, which is my favorite uh, Saturn Uh, Mm -hmm. Saturn V launch stage, partially because uh, a couple of them crashed into the moon, a couple of them orbited the sun, and uh, also partially because they were manufactured in Sacramento, which is just a two-hour drive away from me. Mm -hmm. Um, The S1C, and you'll see this written as SIC in all caps, but it's pronounced S1C. The S1C was originally manufactured at the Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans. Uh, It was designed at Marshall. Uh, the design was wind tunnel tested in Seattle and the tooling was built in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, the S1C3 and onward were actually manufactured by Boeing. So, you know, we talk about the, the Apollo program being a, a effort of 50 different states. You know, it's just so, uh, diverse and I, and I love it. So I wanted to run through that list real quick. So just talk about the the s1c for a second here 21 tons of the vehicle's 145 ton dry mass was dedicated to the thrust structure uh it was made out of cast aluminum and at the time it was one of the largest castings made in the country the s1c has i mean we're going to talk about the engines in a second so let's let's go up first the the s1c has a 770,000 liter fuel tank and a 1,305,000 liter uh, liquid oxygen tank. Um, And cool little note, uh, the RP-1 in the fuel tank uh, before launch was actually stirred around by bubbling nitrogen through it, but then the tanks during flight were pressurized with helium uh, and the helium tanks were inside the liquid oxygen tank. Just, I mean, this is a common thing to do, you know, cold with cold. Um, but it's kind of cool to to think about these not being carbon overwrapped pressure vessels uh, mm-hmm. causing problems inside of a LOX tank. 15 production models of the S-4B were constructed in total. Models 1 through 13, I don't know if they were called models, but uh, S-1C's 1 through 13 flew on Apollo and Skylab. Uh, 14 and 15 were built, but uh, unused. Um, one is on display at uh, JSC, and the other one is in storage at the Infinity Space Center. It used to be on display at either Michoud or, or Marshall. I don't remember. So in addition to the 15 production models constructed, four test models were constructed, and they were called D, F, S, and T d was the ground test dynamics model f was used for launch complex and launch pad dress rehearsals uh, so like fitment tests that kind of thing uh, s was used for structural load testing and t was used for static test firing and uh, s1c t is what we're talking about today now nasa originally planned well i guess originally, their long-term plan was to do test stands at what is now Stennis, and back then was the Mississippi Test Facility. Um, but those those test stands wouldn't be up and running for another year after this first stand test firing. So waiting for Stennis to get up and running, or, you know, Mississippi Test Facility to get up and running, um, instead they built a stand at MSFC, uh, which is huge um, and has been used for other vehicles as well. So this test stand where this first test firing uh, occurred, the thing is so big that it's got four legs made out of concrete. These legs are square and at the base, they are 48 square feet, which is 14.6 square meters. Um, So imagine 48 square feet of concrete and then those are narrow as they go up but i believe they stay at a constant width as they go down and boy do they go down they go all the way down to the bedrock which is some 60 feet under the under the surface uh s1ct was loaded onto the test stand in march actually the 1st of march in 1965 um so in the show notes i will have a photo of this test stand but i'll also have a photo of S1CT being transported to the pad. And it's, I mean, it's just a... A huge, a huge piece of equipment. So March 1st, they loaded it onto the, onto the stand on April 9th. They did their first uh, single engine tests and they actually did two on April 9th and then a third on April 10th on April 16th, which is this week in space flight history. They did their first five engine test. So five alive comes from all five of those engines running at the same time. The first test only lasted 6.5 seconds only <laughs> It's five gigantic F1 engines. (laughs) But it lasted uh, 6.5 seconds, and it occurred a full two months ahead of schedule. S1CT remained at Marshall and did 18 tests total. So I I mentioned the Mississippi Test Facility, a.k.a. Stennis. That ended up getting up and running, but S1C1 through 3 – were uh, also tested at Marshall before Mississippi got up and running, and then Mississippi tested the rest of them. Okay, so that's this week in spaceflight history.
0: And so what do you got for next week?
1: Next week in 1971, the week is like Jar Jar and an offcast
0: 620C. All right, that is... (laughs)
1: <laughs> can you tell I'm rewatching the prequels?
0: I can tell. I don't know why, but okay. <laughs> I'm not a huge prequel fan, but I know who Jar Jar is. Neither am I, buddy. Yeah, and that's next week in 1971, like Jar Jar and an Offcast 620C. All right, well, if you think you know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So moving on real quick to the upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch and one other return of a Soyuz. So what's that first launch?
2: Well, uh, so... It's a good one to watch because it's a uh, SpaceX launch. So this will be on April 16th, the Falcon 9 taking up the uh, Starlink 6 batch of uh, satellites for their, you know, global constellation. Which is
1: technically their seventh Starlink mission, isn't it? Because they launched a demo mission that wasn't numbered.
2: Right, Ah, right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so their seventh batch, but their Starlink 6. So their sixth, uh, I guess... Uh, official ones or non demo uh, yeah you,
1: yeah you could say like the sixth operational
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> patch, i guess so uh keep an eye out this will be at uh 2131 uh utc of course launching from uh Slick 40 at the Cape. All right,
1: next up we have uh, Soyuz MS-15 is undocking. That can be watched on NASA TV. Um, it's happening on Thursday the 16th. Coverage will begin at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The docking is unscheduled at 9.53 p.m. Eastern Time. And then let's see, the, the deorbit burn and landing coverage laps over into Friday, so coverage will begin at 12 a.m., uh, eastern f- on friday and uh, the deorbit burn is scheduled at twelve twenty two a m eastern time and the landing in Kazakhstan is scheduled at one 1- 17 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm going to be missing that one.
0: <laughs> okay, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to de-orbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkies and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as shoutouts and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links, or Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you